Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. In this episode, we are sharing audio from Consumer Voices webinar that was part of the Dignity for All Staffing Standards Now campaign. This campaign is advocating for a minimum staffing standard in nursing homes. This discussion highlighted the experiences of long-term care residents as they shared, in their own words, how living in a facility with inadequate staffing affects their quality of life and quality of care that they receive, and what it would mean for their lives to live in a facility with enough staff. To view the PowerPoint slides mentioned in this episode and to learn more about the campaign, visit theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality. Hi, everyone. I'm Jocelyn Bogdan from Consumer Voice. Thank you for joining us for our third event in our Dignity for All series. Over the past several weeks, we've been highlighting the importance of a minimum staffing standard and particularly highlighting the voices of the people who are the most impacted by understaffing in facilities. Today's event, Dignity for All, Resident Voices on How Staffing Impacts Their Lives, is a conversation with residents about the implications of understaffing in their facilities. We are joined today by Cindy Napolitan, a resident from Texas, who will speak in a few minutes about how poor staffing impacts her daily life. We are also going to hear a discussion pre-recorded one week ago between Cindy and several other residents on this topic. We are so grateful to the residents, Maurice, Barb, Marguerite, and Terry, as well as Cindy, for taking time out of their daily lives to discuss these issues with us and to share some very personal stories. For those of you new to Consumer Voice, Consumer Voice is the leading national voice representing consumers in issues related to long-term care. We advocate, educate, empower, and train and support. We're excited that this campaign has really focused on empowering long-term care consumers and staff to lift their own voices. And with that, I will turn things over to Cindy to get us started today. Thank you, Jocelyn. Good afternoon, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you about what it's like to be a resident in a nursing home and experience a lack of staff. My name is Cindy Napolitan. My daughter, Melissa, and I were diagnosed decades ago with multiple sclerosis. We were cared for by my husband until his sudden death in 2017. We hired part-time help to care for us at home, but because of the cost and lack of accessibility of our home, we entered long-term care. We've lived in several facilities in the Dallas, Texas area for over five years. My current nursing home houses up to 130 plus, including short-term rehab residents. It's divided into four areas or halls. I live on the 400 hall with 37 other residents. Each room has two residents that share a common bathroom and shower. The hall has residents of all ages and includes memory care. The walls are very thin and at times it is very noisy, which affects our ability to sleep. During our monthly resident council meetings, the number one concern of residents is always staff shortages. The most important department to residents is our nursing care, especially certified nurse aides. My daughter and I rely on our certified nurse aide to provide total care for us, which means they clean, dress, change, shower, hoyer lift us from bed to wheelchair 24 hours a day. At this time, 
my facility is hiring personal care assistants who have little or no training, which in my opinion is an accident waiting to happen. During staff shortages, showers are canceled, diapers remain dirty, and we have to stay in our beds, which is an unhealthy and depressing way to live. Yesterday, I waited two hours for an aide to answer the call light and change me. If we're lucky enough to have the same aid daily, they learn our routine and we don't have to constantly explain our needs. Most of these aides are trying to do their best to get the job done, but because they have so many to care for, they feel defeated and overwhelmed and ultimately leave us. Medication aides are responsible for approximately 60 and our nurse cares for 38 residents. If they don't show up, then there is a wait for a replacement and medications and nursing duties are delayed. I'd like to take this time to thank all of the wonderful, dedicated and caring nurse staff. Please be patient with this process of implementing staff standards, which will enable you to effectively and compassionately care for your residents. Your voice will help accomplish this vital and important change to long-term care. You are our lifeline. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for sharing that much, Cindy. We really appreciate your time and advocacy. Cindy, like all of the residents you'll hear from today, is a member of our Consumer Advisory Council. Our members are all incredible advocates for themselves and other nursing home residents, and we really appreciate all the work that they do. We're going to turn the we're going to now turn to the conversation that we had with Cindy, Maurice, Marguerite, Barb, and Terry. Libby, if you could pull up the video. Hi, everyone. We're lucky to be joined today by residents from around the country. And I think we're just going to get started by going around and doing very brief introductions. Um, I'm just going to call on you guys today based on how you appear on my screen. And if you want to just share your name, um, your location, you can give your state, you can give your city and state, um, and then just how long you've been living in long-term care. Um, so, Marguerite, can you get us started? Yes, my name is Marguerite Brochus. Um, I'm in a nursing home in Southeast Ohio, and I've been here six years. Thank you. Maurice? My name is Maurice Miller. I am in Maryland in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. I have been at this particular facility for 10 years. Barb? Um, my name is Barb Conan. I am also in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area in Laurel, Maryland, uh, and I have been in long-term care for 11 years in various facilities. Thank you. Cindy? Hi, my name is Cindy Napolitan. I live in the Dallas, Texas area. I happen to live with my daughter, and we have both been in long-term care for over five years. Thanks. And Terry? My name is Terry Moore. Um, I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I've been in long care care for about four years. Thank you. And thank you all so much for joining us for this conversation today about staffing. We really appreciate that you're here. Um, the first question I really want everyone to answer um, is, 
do you think your facility has adequate staffing? And for purposes of our conversation today, by adequate staffing, I mean, is there enough staff for residents to receive the quality person-centered care that they deserve and they have a right to when they move into long-term care? And no. anyone can get us started. No, I'll say that I live in a 400 bed facility, which is a large facility. And uh, no, we don't have enough staffing. We use some agency. Um, staffing has gotten better, but we still have a ways to go. Anyone else? I'll jump in then. Um, absolutely not. Uh, I have been in this facility only since October. Um, but I have found that the best facility, the best staffing is in the privately owned facilities. Um, the last three facilities that I've been in have been under a corporate umbrella. They're very large companies who own numerous, numerous uh, facilities. I don't think they care a whole lot. It's all about the Benjamin. Um, our, our staffing is very inadequate. We also use a lot of agency personnel and the agency people, what can I say? You know, they, they, they don't have any um, loyalty, I guess would be the word, to a particular facility or to the residents. Uh, so no, uh, and this particular facility, in my opinion, is the worst I've been in. Yeah, we don't have enough staffing either. It's um, It seems to be that the understaffing is a choice that the facility makes because you know, there are enough people to be had on the floor, but they send people home if they reach right. a certain number. Uh, at my facility, it seems that our weekends are mostly the time when we're short. We have a lot of call-ins on the weekends. We don't have management here, so we don't have any extra help. Um, but during the week, um, if everybody shows up, then it's, it's pretty well staffed. But at times, it can be... Um, really difficult to find somebody to help you our answer my answer is definitely not um we are a 51 bed long-term care facility that means we have 51 long-term care residents um sometimes the ratio of staff to long-term care residents can be as high as 10 to 1 and at night sometimes only one staff member will show up and uh, they're scrambling around desperately to find someone else to show up which means the ratio is about 25 to 1. Um, interestingly enough, we find that many of our agency people, because they work with us so many times and so consistently, are some of the most loyal people we have. 
but there's still too much, too many of them. Um, and one of the reasons there are is because they have no interest in working for our facility full time. They see what happens here. Um, so we lack staff. Um, we also lack um, the ability to retain staff. Uh, we'll train people and two or three days after they complete their orientation and um, get on the floor full time, they leave because they realize that they not they, they not don't necessarily aren't able to, to handle the situation, but they're not able to handle the situation here. And our biggest dilemma is our own reputation and getting in our own way. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, um, for responding to that. And so I think it sounds like most of your facilities are understaffed. Um, can can anyone describe an, um, the impact of what that understaffing means in your day-to-day -day life? Um, you know, sort of, you know, what happens in a normal day when there aren't enough staff? What does that mean to you? In my case, if I may, um, sure. I have a certain routine that, of course, I have built up after so many years of being in long-term care, and I am able to do a lot of things for myself. But because I have a routine, and I also have certain things that need to be done, if the staffing changes, if it's not the usual people, if it's the agency people, I have to re-educate every single day the staff who is taking care of me. That is okay if they are willing to take uh, suggestions, if they are willing to listen, as opposed to just going about their own you know, business their way, which means that I don't get up on time, I don't make certain meetings, I don't get to go out when I uh, have scheduled something. Um, I don't get my shower on time. Uh, many things that are just more difficult for me, and I have to adjust my schedule, my routine to their schedules. Our biggest problem here is um, an appreciation of actual staff uh, resident care. Um, peoples are not changed, for example, uh, for an entire shift because there are too few staff members here. Um, the next shift will come in and they will only slightly complain about the fact that people are not changed and the beds have not been changed because they understand that the shift before them is extremely understaffed. Um, but the facility will tout the fact that there are no outbreaks of pressure ulcers 
or anything like that. And so what? Um, if you are lying in your own waist for eight hours, it's uncomfortable. It can cause other problems besides pressure ulcers. Um, and I don't think any manager would care to do that. Um, we also, like Barb, have problems with getting to appointments on time, finding people to take us to appointments on time. If we need someone to take, escort us because we don't have a family member um, and some of the equipment is antiquated. So we need people with extra skills to make sure that we can use the equipment safely. Um, it's a big hassle to have too few people um, and to have too few skilled people to help you. Um, I'd like to ask a question of everyone. Uh, in your facilities, when the aides use a Hoyer lift, are they required to have two people, uh, one to help supervise? Um, or do you find that your staff is only doing one? Here in this facility, they require two CNAs to operate a Hoyer lift, but with the staffing shortage, um, they're not able to do that. My daughter uses the Hoyer and she has to control the up and down. Um, if, an, uh, if a resident is not able to do that for themselves, then there's a safety issue with that because I don't believe that a CNA can operate it and get them safely into their bed or safely into their wheelchair without somebody else helping. So what I is agree. your experience with that? Um, I use a Hoyer lift and in my state there is um, a rule that Hoyer lifts can only be operated if there are two people present. So one to operate and one to spot to see if things don't go, go wrong. Um, so in, in my case, it often means that I have to wait for them to find a second person to do that. And that means, yeah, wait times. I know in our, in our facility, <clears throat> my roommate uses a Hoyer lift. Um, there's supposed to be two people. Doesn't always happen, but there are supposed to be two people. And that one person does actually do the uses the controls and does the lift at the same time. Um, but uh, yeah, they're supposed to have two. We are required to have all your lift here um, with two people using it. The problem is our Hoya lifts are at least 15 to 20 years old. Um, so they're vulnerable to uh, things such as tilting, especially if the people involved are not skilled enough. I was had an experience where the Hoya lift tilted to a 45 degree angle. The only reason it did not tilt over completely is because I landed against the drawers in my room. And at that time, there were three people plus the nursing unit manager on the floor. 
here in the room and it still happens. Um, so it's a matter of having the right people and also good equipment. Um, and those two things are very key. Um, I've been told that by the CNAs that if there is an accident while they're operating the Hoyer lift and they don't have a second person, that they can actually lose their license. Yeah. Um, is that true in your states as well? It is. Okay. And it, happened, it has happened that somebody got fired because she operated with by herself. And it's the same here, I believe. Now, in my case, um, since I've not been really well the past uh, several months, I have reverted back to the Hoyer lift uh, because I don't have the strength to transfer on my own right now. Um, but because I'm able to guide myself into my chair, then they do operate with just one, but technically there are supposed to be two. Thanks for raising that, Cindy. Um, I'm actually going to jump to a different question um, based on the conversation you all just had. Um, I want to come back to sort of what your lives look like as a result of understaffing. But I also wanted us to talk a little bit about the impact you see on the staff at your facility. Um, last week, Consumer Voice had a conversation with CNAs about how understaffing impacts them. Um, and as a resident, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that, about how the lack of staff in your facility impacts the staff who are there, because I think that that just came up a little bit in your conversation of the staff operating machinery by themselves. Um, I think morale is very definitely affected. And I know that Maurice said that in his case, um, sometimes they, they, the ratio may be 10 to one. Well, in our case, it's not unusual to be 14 or 15 to one. And when that happens, uh, those uh, GNAs in our case, because they use only GNAs here, um, you know, they're hassled, they're hurried, they don't do the job that they want to do or are able to do. And it's simply a, I, I hate to use the expression, but I can't think of another way to do it, the slam bam, thank you, ma'am. You know, let's get it as minimally done as possible and get out of here and get on to the next person because 14 or 15 in 18 hours to get them changed, fed, up, back in bed, uh, washed up. That's a tough, tough road to hope. So I think I think it affects it affects both sides. Doesn't affect management, but it does affect the GNAs and the and the uh, CMAs. Absolutely. Um, Barb, I'm not familiar with a GNA. What what is that position? Oh, that's it's it's more. Um, uh, more training than the CNA. It's geriatric nursing oh. assistant. Oh. So it's specifically for those those of us who are a little older. Uh, it's actually for these long-term facilities. Um, it's more training. Oh, okay. I've never heard that before. Thanks for letting us know about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before either. Um, I don't think our state has that. So that would be that would be great to have somebody who's yeah. more in our case there there are no cnas except during the 
uh, the height of the pandemic. Of course, they let CNAs come in and do the job that GNAs were to be doing. Um, but but now I believe the facility only allows GNAs. Yeah, you only have GNAs as well. In my facility, um, the ratio of 10 to 1 is the official ratio, but we last week had 22 people to one aid. Um, and um, when I talk to aid um, about that kind of uh, workload, they say they go home crying because they have not been able to give the care that they know we deserve because they can't finish their things. It's on to the next shift. We have 12 hour shifts where I'm at. So that's a really long haul. And I must say that the aides here work extremely hard. Um, I have met, go ahead. Go ahead, Maurice. I have met some of the most talented people here who are GNAs. And in the course of having to do more work in less time, I have seen a gradual increase in their depression, an increase in their impatience in dealing with newer staff and their um, inability to break out of certain routines when it comes to dealing with us as residents. And it's all because they're trying to get some of the job done or as much of the job done as possible. And here in our facility, our company requires, ironically, that you take as, as a staff member two breaks on your shift. And if you don't, they will dock you. Mind you, they don't give you the time to do that. So many of the GNAs lie and say they've taken the breaks because they have no choice but to work through it. And so you know, the best you can do is try not to be upset and angry. And I didn't, I failed to do that yesterday with one and try to be understanding and try to develop a rapport with as many of them as you can because a job that's impossible is even more impossible right now. Um, my facility, uh, um, we're still hiring personal care assistants who have no training whatsoever. When they come in, they get to go with a CNA for three days and it, that's as far as their training goes. Um, so I'm constantly training PCAs how to do their job. Um, it's exhausting. And uh, again, I can speak up. I don't know how they're caring 
for anybody else in the building, but um, they definitely need training. Um, PCAs cannot get the job done well. I know in our state, um, we've had, I guess they're called PC, I don't know what they're called here, um, but they're, you know, aides that have not had any formal training, like what you just described. But what my understanding is that this, and I thought this was from the top, that this was supposed to stop in a couple of months, that they could no longer hire these people. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen for those facilities that really need them. We no longer, we had some like the people like that here in this facility and they are no longer here. Um, and also for what the further question was, is we have about 45 people, 45 to 50 people per floor. And there sometimes we only have three aides. Now, I don't know if this is a state thing or a federal thing, but it says that an aide can take care of up to 19 people. That's a whole lot. Um, and I know in talking to the ones here that, again, we've, I've developed rapport with, they're frustrated, they're angry, they're tired. They're just tired. You know, um, they blame a lot of it on corporate. Um, and only because they've now their vision has gotten so narrow because they are so tired and they are so overworked that they, they're no longer able to see the big picture of you know they're trying to hire people but you got to have people come in and want to be hired in order for them to hire so it's still a catch-22 no matter how you look at it i think justin one of the other things that we've had to consider here is that, and I think it's a problem nationwide, is that the pay scale is not adequate. Um, so in addition to working hard in our facility and not getting the job done as well as they want, they also have to go to another job because they have to make ends meet somehow. So that can be relaxing if the other facility um, has better standards and you know a, a, a low, lower ratio. Um, but then you have to come back here. Um, but the vast majority of the GNAs here do have second jobs elsewhere. And that's not necessarily by choice. Thank you, guys. Oh, go ahead, Barb. Sorry. Yeah, You're on so mute. I was saying, going to say there's a lot of people here. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Um, to add to what both Terry and and uh, Maurice said. Uh, because of the pay scale being so low and they're having, and these, these people have to work so hard. It's the GNAs who do all the work, the nurses, not so much. And because the pay scale is so low, we have them jumping ship and going to the agencies because the agencies pay a good deal better. Now mm -hmm. they don't have perhaps the, the health benefits or the benefits. 
but they do go to um, the agencies to make more money. So maybe they don't have to have that second job. So that way we lose, you know, we lose I've one way noticed, or the other. Sorry. I, I've also noticed that the competition is not agencies or other nursing homes, but places like Amazon fulfillment centers or Walmart, because they can make better money there and less stress. Yeah, here a lot of people, not a lot of, but there's a fair amount of work double shifts here. They don't want to do agency because they already know the people, they know the routines. Um, the agency people, I can't think of any of our people offhand that go to work for agency besides working here. It's either agency or it's working here, um, which is good in a way because we still have the same people all the time, but they're working double shifts. Again, they're getting stressed out. And now it's 16 hour shifts instead of the 12 hour shifts. So, you know, again, it's hard. But picking up on what Marguerite says, um, Aldi's, for example, is trying to position itself as the third largest grocery store chain in the country. And <coughs> they advertise themselves as needing um, people at all at all skill levels, and they advertise themselves as uh, offering great pay and as having benefits when you start, as opposed to having to wait. And as Marguerite said, um, you don't have to lose. Um, to another facility or anything like that, or even, you know, private duty, you can lose to a good paying job, which happens, by the way, to be a union job in most cases, um, with great benefits, with great pay, and knowing that you can go home at night um, without worrying about whether or not a person lives or dies. Just knowing that you've fulfilled an order and that, you know, you had to do, do you want paper or plastic? Yeah, the running joke here is, do you want fries with that? Yeah, same thing. Thank you guys all so much. I, you know, I hate to even pull away from this question a little bit, but it really strikes me that both during our conversation last week with CNAs where they were asked about residents and today talking to all of you about CNAs, the amount of empathy that goes both ways that, you know, it's really, you know, staff and residents on, on the ground staff and residents are really sort of in this together and able to see that um, throughout. But so thank you guys all for that. I do want to take the conversation back to a little bit more of what the impact is on all of you from the understaffing. Um, and so one question I wanted to ask, and I know Marguerite, you can speak to this a little bit, um, is do you have to make adjustments to your life because of the lack of staff? Are there things that you do differently because there isn't enough staff in your facility? Yes. I, um, I have changed my morning routine from 
uh, getting up and having a cup of coffee to getting coffee, eating breakfast, reading the paper, do some crosswords, and that all because there's not enough staff to get me up. So you're stuck in bed during all of that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Um, are there any other sort of like impacts on your daily routine that you experience because of the lack of staff? It really does. Really, I can get myself up. I, I do my own my own thing. Um, I can walk a couple of steps to my wheelchair, which is what I do. Um, but it really ha in that effect, it has an effect. I see more the effect on my roommate who is bed bound, so she doesn't isn't able to get up as often as she'd like. Um, her, you know, her care is not as frequent as it should be. Just. I know there for a while I was the one feeding her because nobody else would come in and feed her. I mean, I've done that a long time where just the aide didn't have time to come feed her, so I would do it. One thing that concerns me is not so much in my routine, but it's in the routine of some of the other residents who can't advocate for themselves or take care of themselves is that because the staff is so busy, um, they are not able to adequately take care of those residents. For example, we have a resident who um, is frequently out of her room. She has, I believe, dementia and she, her native tongue, when she was communicating easily, I believe was Spanish. Well, no one on the staff speaks Spanish. No one among the GNA staff speaks Spanish. And the best thing to do is say, go, go, go back to your room. And they can't assist her in um, feeling comfortable and staying in her room. Um, they can't spend time with her. Um, there have been, in the last week and a half, like five code greens, which means that they cannot account for a resident somewhere in the facility. And so the, all the staff have to go around looking for a resident. And that means um, that's also a sign that the staffing is too preoccupied with too many chores to account for all of our residents. It's like um, the building's not that big, and to have and to lose residents five times in a week and a half is like <laughs> it's it's a sad joke. But more importantly, it's safety risk. Um, and it means you are not basically up to staff so that you can assist these residents um, and keep them safe. You know, and the state regulators, when you talk to them, say, well, you can't restrain them. I'm saying, and you say, no one wants to restrain them. No, we just need to keep them comfortable and reassure them that they can stay in their rooms. 
And all that means is regular staffing. My God, who wants to restrain people? And they say, oh, well, we can't do that. I said, well, what if it was your mother who was walking around? Would that change the situation? And then they don't answer the question. Thank you. And, and Terry and Maurice, you actually brought me to another question that I was going to ask, um, which is, you know, the fact that we are all sitting here having this conversation on Zoom means despite the impact that the lack of staffing has had on your lives, um, you are all some of the best situated residents in terms of being able to advocate and speak up for yourself. Um, and uh, Terry and Maurice have done this a bit already, but if anyone else wants to comment on what you see as the impacts on the residents in your facilities who don't have that voice and who don't have the ability to advocate for themselves when there isn't enough staffing. Well, I, I have to agree with both of them that my heart goes out to them because they cannot, in some cases, even get their cup of water to take a sip. They can't, I have a roommate who is a double amputee and has a certain amount of dementia and only speaks Russian. She's often overlooked because she can't say, hey, I need help. Um, so my other, there are three of us in the room and my other roommate and I watch out for her we'll use our call lights if we think that she needs help. And there are so many, I believe, maybe that's an exaggeration, but there are a number of residents who cannot speak for themselves. And I do believe that they are, they get less care than those of us who are able to speak up for ourselves. And it's not fair. I agree. We had, um, or I had a neighbor for a while who was nonverbal, who could not express anything in words um, and was not able to write down what she wanted either. And I think she was also sliding into dementia. So if someone like that um, needs help, then I don't know how that is going to help, how that's going to happen for, for her. We see a lot of people falling out of their wheelchairs they're trying to get the attention of someone to maybe take them to the bathroom, change them, get them a drink, and then they give up waiting and then they try to stand on their own and walk on their own and end up falling and breaking a hip um, or another bone in their body. And again, if there was enough staffing and people would pay attention to what's going on, actually supervise the people on the floor or in the dining room or anywhere in the building, we could avoid all of these tragedies of people getting hurt and even dying. Um, we recently, we've had a lot of deaths on my hall uh, just during the last uh, two months. The most recent case was a lady who's been here quite a while. She normally didn't get out of bed but for two days she was not responding uh, and she wasn't um, eating or drinking and her family kept asking for help on why they weren't doing why she wasn't waking up and 
they told me that they kept uh, the nurses kept telling her that it was the medication that was making her sleep. Well, finally, after days and days of that, um, her family insisted that she go to the hospital. And when she got to the hospital, um, the doctors told them that she had a UTI that had gone into sepsis and that she had pneumonia and that she didn't have any um, antibiotics, hadn't been treated for any of those things. So of course that family was totally upset and irate. They came here a few days later to ask for her medical records and they were told that uh, they could not give them to them at that time, that they would have to request them from the corporate office. So there's things that happen that I believe shouldn't happen. I mean, if we had adequate staffing um, and nurses that, because I am, my understanding is if they send you to the hospital, then the nursing home doesn't get paid. The hospital gets paid. So that is a, a big issue with me. I mean, they can't take care of you um, here. It's supposed to be a skilled, a skilled nursing home, but we have to go out of the building to get certain things done because they don't do them here by choice. Other nursing homes do these procedures, but this one refuses to do it. So, and on some days when we try to go out of the building to do that, we don't have a driver available. Um, so, uh, you know, that's not right. We, we need plenty of staffing to get all jobs done here. I must say that, again, in that respect, we are luckier. We have a contract with an outside ambulance or company that does our transports for us. We do have one vehicle with one driver that does transports here, too. Um, so in that respect, we're, you know, we're lucky. But I, I can't, I'll be honest with you, I can't imagine that happening to you all, um, especially to that one person, the, the lady you were talking about who passed away. Apparently she didn't have consistent, a consistent aide to take care of her who knows her, who would be able to identify the fact that there was something wrong from day to day. You know, that, that should be just part of it. You know, you take care of somebody and she's not her norm, then that should be identified. Uh, the family cannot go in and ask for her records. That is a legal thing. Normally for them to get her records, um, first of all, she would, to get her records, she'd have to sign for herself. That's not something she can do. So I don't know if they have to get a subpoena for that or how they go, but they would have to, you know, there are certain things they'd have to go through to get a reference. They can't just come in and ask for them because of legalities and HIPAA and, and all those good things. So yeah, to get her records, they have to, they have to go through the steps. So Which we have, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, and I have two more questions. Um, one, you know, we've been talking about some pretty terrible things happening and this is in not the best of situations but in a normal situation in your nursing home um one thing i wanted to ask is about staffing when 
it's it's not a normal time. And so, Cindy, I was thinking particularly of you because I know your facility just had a neurovirus outbreak. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it means when something happens and it's not an average day, but suddenly it's sort of like a heightened situation um, and there isn't enough staffing. And if you want to kick it off by talking about your recent experience, that would be great. Uh, yes, we had um, a virus go around here that uh, started with vomiting and then the diarrhea came. Um, so, and it affected many people on our hall. Uh, it affected me. Um, it would be a continuous, what I did one night is I sat up, my stomach started gurgling. I got that weird feeling in my throat and my stomach and I turned on my call light just to get something in case I vomited. And I waited and waited 15 minutes. I had my daughter call uh, the nurse's station, ask them to come bring me something. And again, that was another 15 minutes. Well, by the time they came in to my room, I had already vomited like all over myself. I had nothing to do it in, it just went all over me. And so I sat there and waited and then the A had to clean me up. And, you know, that takes a good 30 minutes or so to get you cleaned up and your bed changed and all of that. And um, fortunately, I didn't have any more that night of the vomiting. But the next day, I started with the diarrhea. And it was continuous. And you'd turn on your light and um, you'd wait and they'd come in finally and change you and then again it would happen but this was happening all over the floor it wasn't just me um and the interesting thing about that is when it happened also we're using more supplies more briefs or diapers so we ran out of those and they were just searching the building to find something to put under you um so um, it's just when something like that happens, it just exacerbates the whole situation um, because everybody needs something at the same time. And this was like overnight and we already have like maybe one person working for 38 people. Sometimes we have two aides at night on that shift, but um, it just it just made the whole thing um terrible and then you have to worry that you're going to get a uti because you've been laying in filth you have to worry that you're going to get uh rashes or sores which i do i have very sensitive skin so then i ended up getting a major rash that we're still trying to get cleared up to this day um but it's just it's just always something um and i believe it it's all goes around the staffing issues if we had enough staffing, they could have answered the light, gotten me something to vomit in, and then they wouldn't have had to spend extra time cleaning me up. So it's just like a domino effect of everything that happens. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know that's a very personal story, but I think I think you're right. It shows what happens when, I mean, and I think to some extent we saw something you know, it, it's a much smaller example, but sort of what we saw during COVID, you know, where I think so many people said, you know, when COVID happened, 
oh my goodness, now there's not enough staff. Well, there wasn't enough staff before and COVID really brought that to light. And I think that we have to remember that there are constantly things that happen that might not be as large scale as a worldwide pandemic, but within a nursing home, an outbreak like that does have an impact when there isn't enough staff to care for people. So thank you for sharing that story. Um, I just want to wrap by sort of taking everything we've talked about in and switching it and making it a little bit positive or you know if if you want to answer in sort of a positive light um what what would a minimum staffing standard mean for you um how do you think it would change your life in a facility if there is enough staff what would things look like if you weren't worried about the effect of understaffing i think that um the care you would get would be not just the necessary clothing and feeding and cleaning but it could actually um, entail things like conversations or just general um, human contact that doesn't happen right now um they could also they would be able to clip people's fingernails and clean under their fingernails i see a lot of residents with really long nails and dirty under there. I mean, those are the things that they could spend time doing um, that they're not able to do now. Shave the men. So that yes. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I think I would like to underline throughout this entire conversation is that the GNAs and the CNAs are the first line of defense. Um, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's helping us in our daily lives, they're the ones, and I've said this in resident council meetings as well, they're the ones who are trained in CPR and can stay, literally save our lives. They're also the ones who are able first to spot any abnormalities on our skin and point them out to the nurses, who point them out to the doctors. They're the people who see us constantly on a regular basis. And when you are fully staffed, they are able to do those things and the other things that uh, Cindy and Tracy talked about. And what happens is they know that they're doing their jobs and they know that they're doing them right. And they come home and they, there's a sense of pride that they have because they know what they're doing is correct. They don't care about the money. They don't care about anything else. They're taking care of people. Um, one of our GNAs never told anyone about the fact that her husband was fighting an illness. She got COVID and gave it to him and died. He died as a result. About four months later, she came back because she felt it was a thing that she should do as a Christian. And she wanted to help people. And that's the type of 
resilience. That's the type of dedication that we get out of many of our GNAs, but we don't get it out of enough of our GNAs because they're burned out, they're overworked, basically they're enslaved right now and they're not able to do the job they signed up to do. And when they are, they are the happiest people in the world. Thank you. Um, and I think that's actually a great way to end our conversation. So thank you again all for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate you sharing your experiences. And just briefly, that ended that conversation, but that does not end the webinar. I've got a few more slides that Libby is about to pull up. Um, so if you could stick around. Um, one second. Okay. Um, so first, I just want to take a moment again to thank the residents who participated in the conversation today. We are so lucky to have such strong advocates and just really amazing people on our Consumer Advisory Council. If anyone listening today knows of residents who would be interested in becoming involved in the council, please reach out to me and let me know. And I'd also like to give a very quick shout out to Sharon, um, a resident on our council who was unable to attend this conversation because of scheduling issues at her facility. She wasn't able to record with us, but she's been very active in the chat today, and we really appreciate all of her contributions as well. And just a few more quick things before we close out. First, we have several staffing resources on the Consumer Voice webpage. Please visit the page to learn more about the impact of understaffing and why a minimum staffing standard is so important. Next slide. And finally, we welcome all of you to our Dignity for All webpage. You can find our previous webinars on this page and information for our upcoming webinar, Dignity for All, Increased Scrutiny of Nursing Home Finances, featuring Ernie Tosh, and Sam Brooks um, that will take place on April 6th. We also have a link to share your story about what it means to you to live or work in a nursing home with inadequate staffing. And we strongly encourage you to share your story with us. We wanna thank everyone for attending today and listening to the voices of residents. And with that, we are going to close out. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. This podcast is a program of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information and resources. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.